Hey folks, thanks for checking out Missio Church in Niner, Iowa. You are listening to audio recorded at our Sunday morning service. If you'd like any more information on the gospel or would like to learn more about Missio Church, you can find us on Facebook at facebook.com backslash Missio Mount Air. I invite you to get your Bibles out to Matthew chapter 6, um, maybe just the one verse previous there in chapter 5, but we'll be reading the first four verses in chapter 6. So, roundabout Matthew chapter 5, verse 48 through chapter 6, verse 4. Matthew five forty-eight through Matthew 6, 4. You, therefore, must be perfect, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. For then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing, so that your giving may be in secret. And your Father, who sees in secret, will reward you. Grass withers, flower fades, the word of our God stands forever. Is Christianity about your obedience? Or is Christianity about your happiness? Is Christianity about your obedience? Or is it about your happiness? If we could take a poll, I'd almost like want to ask, like, who would raise their hands that thinks that Christianity is about your obedience? How many hands are raised? Okay, I got one. I got a few. Okay. How many would say Christianity is about your happiness? Really? Okay. That's interesting. Because I would say Christianity is about your obedience and your happiness. Sorry, it's a false dichotomy. <laughs> it's not just one or the other. That's interesting because what can happen as we, we've been going through the Sermon on the Mount here and, and there's, there's um, Christianity absolutely, you can hear from the words of Jesus, he's asking for an, a higher level of obedience to the law of God to the, such that your heart, from the heart, you are wanting to please God. You've heard it said, do this and that, but I say go even farther. You know, I've, you've said do not commit murder. I say don't even hate your brother because then you're guilty of murder. And there is this absolute call for obedience. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 3 says plainly that God's will for you is your sanctification your growth in godliness, that we would all live lives that are more glorifying and pleasing to God. But it is not God's will for simple, naked obedience to Him. That is not His will. That we would all of a sudden become Missio Church. We are people, we obey God. 
doggone it, we do it. Devoid from any joy in Him does not glorify God. Christianity, is it about your obedience? Who would raise their hands on that? It is. Is Christianity about your happiness? It is. It's about your happiness in Him. This is not about obedience to the point of where uh, I, I give up all the great things the world has to offer and I just mopily come to Jesus instead. That does not honor Jesus. That we are not after, God is not after. As we go through the, the Sermon on the Mount and as we get into chapter 6, looking about how you even practice your piety, right? This was all, chapter 5 is the, the anti, antithesis, the antithesis, all these six different contrary statements about you've heard it said, but I say to you. And now we get into the practicing of your piety or the practicing of your righteousness, that they, we, we have a section here on giving to the needy. The giving of alms is what it's traditionally has been called. There is the praying, that, that, and then they go on into fasting. There's these three religious elements that were in the lives of God's people. Giving to the needy, benevolence, uh, giving to others, prayers being offered, and then fasting. Like There's a, there's a certain practice of, I, I do without because of my great desire for something more than, than just this food. And so Jesus is going to keep on in this call for kingdom, to, kingdom people to have a righteousness that exceeds the norms, a righteousness that exceeds the bare minimum to get by. But we are not, and I just feel like I'm going to say this probably 500 times now this morning, we at Missio Church we are for your happiness. And now, and I don't mean that in some TBN sort of way, some Joel Osteen, you know, God wants you to have your best life now. No, what we are for is your joy in Jesus. And I mean it. Like, I, I truly mean it. We want, yes, living lives that glorify God. Because you enjoy Him so much, you can't imagine living any other way. And it is, we are after, I want your greatest happiness by turning from these uh, ways of, of, of seeing the world and, and practicing your righteous in a way that is faithful only comes about by the, the purity of not only do I obey, but I obey because I want to. I want to. So there's this hinge verse and just keep popping. I, I, Jim and I didn't know where to place this verse. It's the end of verse of chapter 5, verse 48. You know, the, this is, everyone knows this, but chapter verses, they're not divinely inspired. They're just brought in after the fact so we can find our way around. And so where does verse 48, does it summarize the, the six statements coming before it? Is it a lead into the next section? I, I think it's a great transition uh, phrase actually into what Jesus is going to be talking about. Verse 48 is this command, you therefore must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. How does this call for kingdom people to be perfect as their Father in heaven is perfect, how does it relate to this next section? It seems like a natural understanding that Jesus is calling not for a mere external conformity, 
but a purity of motive as well. That word, the perfect there, it can be translated as mature. In fact, in other places in the New Testament, it's translated as maturity or completeness. And we know there's lots of calls in Scripture, like, Be holy as I am holy. Matthew, as he records one of Jesus' sermons, maybe the same one, different one, says, Therefore, be merciful as God is merciful. And here in Matthew, we have, Be perfect as God is perfect. There is a purity in the motives of God. God does what he does, not because there's an obligation that it's some right thing to do that sits over top of God. He does what is right because he delights to do what is right. There's a purity of motive flowing from God. There's no hypocrisy with God. Whereas he thinks, what I really want to have happen is this, but I must do the right thing, therefore I will do it. God isn't confused in his emotions and his obedience. And there's this call for the kingdom people, at living as the king's people, to be perfect, to be pure, to be mature in their lives as God is. There is danger in becoming those who perform their duties with their hearts far from God. And I think you all, we all understand this at one level, but it, and it's easy to fall into, but this is the point that Jesus is getting to. There's danger in becoming like that. There is danger in living like the king's people. We have these external conformities but not truly trusting and treasuring the king over all else. So I take up the, the six antithesis statements. I take up all these, these, these ex external conformities of what it means to glorify God. I take them up, but, but my heart isn't really trusting Jesus and really treasuring him. We're not fulfilling this command to be perfect as God is perfect. We must be perfect, pure. And we see that there's a label for those who live such way. It's a popular phrase. We like to throw it around as accusations of people all the time. What's the phrase? What's the title of that kind of person? You see there in verse 2, it's the hypocrite. The hypocrite. And that's just a transliteration, really, of the Greek. It's a play actor. Someone who was in a play was a hypocrite. They put on a mask and they played a role that they really themselves weren't. But they, 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 they fronted as an individual in a play, right? Like you, you, would, you would say things you didn't necessarily mean, but you said them. And you, know, you would play a role, you would, you would hate someone or murder someone or whatever, you know, fall in love with someone on the stage with a mask on, but the person inside of that, inside behind the mask, doesn't really care. That's a hypocrite. Play actors, those who wear a mask, those who are pretending, they read their lines, they make their movements, but it isn't really who they are. Hypocrisy is working hard to keep up the actions of kingdom life with hearts that are far from the king. That is a real danger if we think Christianity is about our obedience apart from our happiness. <laughs> We become people who become hypocrites, working hard for a kingdom life with hearts that are far from the king. We we'll want to be obedient, but, but the joy in him is what is going to fuel that obedience. And if you sever that, I'll be obedient, but I'm not really all that happy about it. That is not honoring Jesus. That is not glorifying God. So chapter 6 is going to bring into the lives of the king's people this reminder the power to live for the king, obedience, 
the power to live for the king is flows from, is fueled by treasuring the king. The power to follow the king, the power to live for the king flows from treasuring the king. If you want obedience to happen in your life, where we want to go and where Jesus goes is not through making our to-do list and naked obedience. And it's just, I'm going to, by my own willpower, white knuckle, do whatever obedience is out in front of me. It is intrinsically, if you do that, what you become, like Jesus says, is a hypocrite. You become the person who's making a show of religion with a heart far from him. And so where we want to go, the, where the power to live for the king flows is from the treasuring of the king. Where do we see this? Okay, Darren, that's a big claim. Where do we see this? Well, there's, there's one word, and I'm reading the ESV. There's one word here in these first 18 verses of chapter 6 that is said seven times. I read it three times this morning, okay? So put your nose in your book, okay? Well, I read this word three times this morning. It's seven times total in the first 18 verses. You see this word in verse 1. You see this word in verse uh, 2. You see this word in verse 4. Does anyone know what the word is? I'm, gonna, I'm just going to test you on it. There's, there's, huh? The, that's a good one. <laughs> the Friedrich family has really got their one-liners lined up. And, and it's good Bible. The word the is in there. It is also at the end of verse 5. It is also close to the end of verse 6. It is also in verse 16. Or no, it's in verse, yes, at the end of verse 16 in your ESV. It is also in verse, almost last in the verse 18. The word is? Reward. reward. Yes, there we go. Reward. Reward. There is something, Jesus is turning our attention now to not just obedience, but to glad joy. There is reward. Why would we be obedient? Why would we want to be the king's people? Because it's worth it. Not because we must in some sort of like categorical, it must happen this way, but because there is joy and beauty in this way of living. The word is reward. He's laying out before his people the reminder that to live for the king is to live for the reward that really matters. It's why I think verse 48 can function almost as a connecting thought between 5 and 6. Jesus is calling for king to people to have a perfection that exists within their father. What he, the perfection is that uh, maturity, completeness, that what God intends to do, he intends to do from the heart. The perfection there, I don't think, is necessarily naked obedience because we get into chapter 6, we read the Lord's Prayer, which is, I would argue, a daily prayer. Um, he says, give us this day our daily bread. But what also is prayed daily there is forgive us our debts, forgive us our sins. If you're an ex-Methodist, forgive us our trespasses as those who trespass against us. So there's an acknowledgement that we will not be perfect in our obedience, but there is still the call, yes, aspirationally for perfection, but I think also there's this call for purity of motive, that I want to please my king 
the king's people live rightly, not merely because of a command to do so, but because they treasure the king over all and they want to live for him because there is no better way to live. What does Jesus mean by must? You must be perfect as I am perfect. What does Jesus mean by must there? You can view the word must in two different ways, okay? How, how long has it been since I've had a meatloaf illustration? It's been a while. Never have too many. That's my, that's my stance, but I try to have mercy on the audience, okay, on the listener. So I get home from work and say, uh, my wife has made me a wonderful meatloaf. It's my birthday or something. I get in, the place smells wonderful. I know it's got the sweet top on it. It's just going to be, it's going to be wonderful because it's meatloaf. And I get home and I say, I must eat that meatloaf. I could mean two different things by that. I could mean my wife has put in the time, she's bought the ingredients, she's made it, and out of respect for her, I must eat this thing. Because if I don't, I'm going to hear about it, right? Because I must eat this thing after all that she's done, I must eat it. I must, or else it's going to cause friction. There's going to be difficulty there, right? That's one way to mean must. I must eat this meatloaf. And there's my way of meaning, which is I must. It is calling to me. I can smell it. I can taste it already. I must eat this meatloaf, right? Well, those are two different ways. of. You must be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect. You must, in your obedience to him, you must do it from a purity of heart. There's one way to view that as naked command. You must, which is partially true. But there's another way that says, I must live like my Father. Look what he has done. Look who he is. Look at his goodness. Look at his beauty. Look at his value and his worth. I must. It is like the wife who, uh, I'm stealing this from John Piper in his book, Desiring God, but um, the husband gets home with his wife and he says, well, well, must I kiss you? And she says, yes, you must, but not that kind of must. Like, you know, that, that the, the husband isn't like, well, I gotta, I must kiss my wife now, but there's a I, I must, I, I, there's this desire, there's this longing, there's this, this will to, this want to. When we think of our enemies and the call to love them, to forgive them and to bless them, which is the end of chapter 5, right? Which must propels us into action? You must forgive your enemy. You must not retaliate. You must not murder with your thoughts or tongue. You must Hold high marriage. You must kill the sin of lust. What is the, the, which must propels you into action? The must that God has commanded it and therefore we, we, we must? True. But what about the must that says, God is so far better than all this other stuff. I must live like he has called me to live. I must treasure him because of the beauty of the Father my prayer for myself, for all of us here at Missio, is that the, as, as the king's people, is that we would see the beauty of the Father so clearly that our must of obedience is not fueled by obligation so much as delight in the king. I must. I must. Hebrews 11.6, the great faith chapter, talks about what all these characters of faith. Hebrews 11.6 says that, Anyone who comes to him, 
uh, without faith is impossible to please God because anyone who comes to him must believe, A, that he exists, and B, that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. God is for your happiness. A happiness that is in him. He's for your obedience through your enjoyment of him. He is after our hearts and our happiness in him that a life of obedience flows out of. The hypocrite can never live this way. The hypocrite can never live this way. They're going to perform the duty. They're going to give their alms. They're going to give to the needy. But their heart all the time is not glad about it. They're not treasuring the king. They're, trying to, they're making a show. That is not how the king's people live. The takeaway from Jesus' comments on these three religious pious duties is not don't bother doing them. Like, you know, don't do the alms, don't pray, don't uh, fast because you're going to mess it up. It's No, it's, it's still do those practices, but make sure, work hard at gazing at the beauty of Christ so that they flow not from obligation, but from joy in Jesus. Do we give to the needy, as the text specifically this morning is about? Absolutely. But we do so not because we must by way of command, but because we must as one who has been needy and the Father has given to us. And therefore we must take that beauty, that love, the generosity that's been given to us and we must turn it around to those around us. Jesus says this is to be so radical that we don't even notice our left hand from our right hand when we do it. And it's a bit of a hyperbole but what it's meant there is that the joy of religious acclaim that the world might give us, you know, if we practice our almsgiving in front of the world and they say, wow, you guys are really generous and well, you guys are great and this is wonderful. The joy that, that comes from practicing our benevolence from the world, it doesn't move the needle in comparison to having the Father himself, from having Jesus himself. How do we take up these beatitudes, the six antithesis statements? Seeking, how do we seek to live to be the king's people? How do we salt and light in the world and not end up being crushed? I mean, if we really think Christianity is about our obedience, I honestly, I kind of want to hang up my hat because I know, my, I know myself. And I'm failing, I fail time and time again. My heart is wicked and is wrestling. And I have all sorts of, sorts of you know, issues, you know, hurts and angers and prejudices and just all sorts of difficulties and sin that's constantly being worked out and brought to light. And if obedience is what this is about, I'm in big trouble. And I mean, not to just beat up on me, but mean to you, you are too. <laughs> you are too. You are too. This is about seeing Jesus and delighting in him over all else. How do we take up then these things and not be crushed? Poverty of spirit, meekness, undergoing persecution and not retaliating. Blessed are you when they persecute you and utter, and utter all sorts of vile things against you on account of my sake. Blessed are you. 
rejoice and be glad, Jesus says? How in the world can that happen? How can we bury that, carry that burden? By trusting and treasuring Jesus over all else. Really, you can understand all of the violations of the obligations against chapter 5, all the, all the transgressing against what's commanded of us in chapter 5, and you can understand all the hypocrisies of chapter 6 as failures to see the beauty of Jesus. Failures to see the beauty of Jesus. We hold grudges. We seek revenge because we believe that we can get for ourselves a superior pleasure than the one promised to us by Jesus. I'm going to be more satisfied to have my payback than to have Jesus. If that isn't sinful, I don't know what is. We don't forgive people because we believe it will bring us greater joy to hold this grudge than to hold on to Jesus. That is a misappropriation of value. <laughs> we permit ourselves to lust and adultery because we believe there's greater joy to be found there than in Jesus. <laughs> we tear our marriages apart. And I'm not speaking of issues of abuse or of adultery or of neglect, but we tear our marriages apart because we believe there's greater joy in having things our way than in having Jesus and living according to His way. We demand our recognition and notice because we believe that we can get for ourselves a better name than the one that Jesus gives to us as his children. It's upside down. The work that is ahead for us personally and for Missio, this is the work that is ahead for us in the spread of the mission. It is not for a spreading of naked obedience. It is not for a spreading of obedience first and foremost. We must first spread the beauty of Christ deep into our hearts so that our lives are glad in Him, seeking to be obedient to Him. And then consequently, as we go out into the world, we shine forth as salt and light in the world the beauty of this Savior. There's a better one to live for. There's a better treasure. Don't make yourself a hypocrite. Come to Sunday morning. Come to our Wednesday night. Start our spiritual disciplines. Do all these activities who have hearts not enraptured with the beauty of Jesus. We don't want, that's not what we want. That is not, that is not what glorifies God. Consequently, the challenge is not just to get the world around us to conform to the commands of Christ, but to see His true beauty, His saving of sinners, His making them His own, securing them to Himself, and watching over them forever. We want to see Jesus. We want to behold our God. We didn't plan that song, but it fits pretty good. We want to behold our God. Maybe Jim did. I, I like he did. Never mind. <laughs> The problem raised in the text is not in practicing your righteousness before the watching world, because we're called to be salt and light in the world. The problem is practicing it in order that the watching world will see. Which reward has caught our gaze? The Christian, one of the commentaries was talking about that I was reading this week, is that the Christian eyesight is always a far-sighted vision. They may be in your far-sighted, like near-sighted is when things that are near you can see. But when you're far-sighted, it's things that are close or kind of blurry and you can't make them out. But you can see everything far away. And the Christian eyesight is to be a far-sighted vision. 
that we have, we, have our, we have our eyes set. We are constantly focused on the reward to come and the one to come, the reward of our King. He has redeemed us. He has made us His children. If you're in this place this morning, you've turned from your sins, looking to Christ in faith, seeing that what He did on the cross was that He took the sin, your sin, upon Himself, so that through repentance and faith, you could be justified and made righteous in His sight. He has made you His child. We then emulate Him, model our lives after Him, because He's our good Father. And we want to be like, we must be like our dad. We must be like our father. We must be. Not because of obligation, although that is there, but because what better way is there to live? He is our good Father. He will watch over us, will be with us, and will bring us all the way home. There is no greater joy than to know that we are His. He is the reward. And the King's people live their lives anchored upon this hope that He is better. Let's pray. Father, just as we pray for our community and everything. God, we pray for our own hearts right now, God. I, help us. The, the disobedience that's in our lives, the sin that's in our lives, the transgression, the turning away, the arrogance, the anger, the, the um, grudge holding, the, the unforgiveness. In so many ways, Father, your command for us to, to repent of that is not just a call to do it out of obedience. It is also a call to see that you are better. You're better. And so God, I pray that as we transition now into a time of communion, that God, you would give us eyes to see you. As we turn from our sin, as we confess it, God, give us eyes to see the beauty of our Savior that we might live no longer under the burden and obligation of sin and its false promises, but the beauty and joy and good promises that come from you. We pray these things in Jesus' name.